So tonight I would like to continue with you in our exploration of the Brahma Viharas, the awakened heart. <clears throat> as a whole, taken as a whole, one way we could think about the Brahma Viharas is as a road map that they provide a road map for how the awakened heart responds to reality. That metta meets life in a friendly way, in an open way, in a loving way. That the heart has this morphic quality or possibility of changing depending on the circumstances that arise, realities that appear. And so then when there's suffering, the heart morphs quite naturally to express compassion. It's a natural response to the sorrows of human life. Joy blooms in resonance with other joy, with other goodness, gladness, happiness, success, beauty. And equanimity expresses a certain understanding, a certain wisdom about the way things are. That balances and holds all the other factors with wisdom. And in this way, emptiness is not empty. Or the other way we might suggest is that emptiness is full. It's full of the awakened heart. Tonight I'd like to speak about the third quality of the awakened heart, the quality of mudita. Mudita is sometimes called appreciative joy, sympathetic joy, empathic joy, altruistic joy sometimes, gladness, or sometimes just joy. And I like what Thich Nhat Hanh says about Mudita. He says, some commentators have said that mudita means sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy. But that is too limited. It discriminates between self and others. A deeper definition of mudita is a joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy but we rejoice in our own well-being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel joy for ourselves? And then quite emphatically with an exclamation mark, he says, joy is for everyone. And the same thought is echoed by Ajahn Damodaro 
who said, develop thoughts and feelings of appreciation, taking delight in the happiness that you experience and in that experience by others. And I feel that's very helpful for us because if we're simply presented with the idea of sympathetic joy or empathic joy, it's always about the joy of others. When joy, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, is for all of us, for ourselves, for our own well-being, for the well-being of all beings. And whenever we use that phrase, all beings, we include ourselves. We're, we're another being. And the part of us that is saying that is not the small sense of self. The part of us that sees that, that knows that, that understands that. In Pali, the word mudita means to be pleased or to have a sense of gladness. And the Buddha talked about mudita as the mind deliverance or the heart deliverance of gladness. And in some ways, we need to rediscover it, to renew our understanding of mudita, of joy. It's not exactly the joy of our society based on competition, based on winning, based on gaining, based on keeping. It's a more sublime joy. And sometimes we have, might have lost touch with it. Jnanapanakatera, in his, again, somewhat archaic language, but a certain, there's a certain poetic to his language, he says, let us teach real joy to men and women. Many have unlearned it. Life, though full of woe, holds also sources of happiness and joy, unknown to most. Let us teach people to seek and to find joy within themselves and to rejoice with the joy of others. Let us teach them to unfold their joy to ever sublimer heights. How's that for an instruction? How's that for a practice? Actually, there's a beautiful poem by Galway Cannell who describes this relearning, this remembering of who we are, of our own innate Buddha nature. He says, the bud, the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, and to retell it in words, and in touch, it is lovely, until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow, and told her in words and touch, blessings of earth on the sow, 
and Sal began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths sucking and blowing beneath them the long perfect loveliness of sound. Sometimes we have to relearn, remember, reteach ourselves of our own loveliness, our own beauty, our own value. Remember, reminding, rediscovering our inherent goodness that is not conditioned by what we do, or what we've done, or what we've accomplished, or the somewhat limited values of society. But to begin to look from ever sublimer heights or depths, however you want to think of it, to really see the beauty that's here, see the goodness that's here, see the joy that's here, the kindness that's here, the love that's here. What I've found sometimes when I talk about joy is that there's some confusion. One of the confusions is, oh, well, I shouldn't be feeling joy because the world's such a mess. And that's not my understanding of the Buddha Dharma. It's almost almost the opposite. That part of the practice, part of the realization of Dharma is actually to still find our joy even in the face of suffering. Doesn't mean we deny suffering. Doesn't mean there's um, the heart's response of compassion. But compassion doesn't overwhelm the other qualities of the awakened heart. And, the, and compassion needs the quality of joy, so it doesn't end up becoming melancholy, depressed, overwhelmed by the suffering. That if we can't delight in the goodness, in the beauty of the day ending, the flowers, the sounds of the birds, the bunnies, the foxes, each other, our hairstyles, whatever it might be. (laughs) This is from a fellow named Mark Morford. He said, stop thinking this is all there is. Realize that for every ongoing war and religious outrage and environmental devastation or Iraqi attack plan, obviously before the beginning of this war, 
There are a thousand counterbalancing acts of staggering generosity and humanity and art and beauty happening all over the world right now on a breathtaking scale from flower box to cathedral. Even to consider, to reflect for a moment of all the people practicing right now, all around the world. People sitting, people chanting the refuges, here, all over Europe, in America, in Asia. And just to reflect on, we could look anywhere, the art that's being made, the dance, the beautiful intelligence of human beings. I've used the Dalai Lama as an example, saying how what an example of metta he is, how he he meets everybody as an old friend. He meets life in a friendly way. Um, of course, he's his incarnation as the Dalai Lama. He's also considered the um, reincarnation of Avalokiteshvara which is the incarnation of Kuan Yin. He is is considered the living manifestation of the Bodhisattva of compassion. He's also a really fun guy. I mean, Dalai Lama knows how to have a good time. He does. He's no slouch when it comes to having a good time. If you've ever been around him, um, he's fun. He's kind of bouncy and childlike and happy. There's a book out, I don't know if it's here in in the UK, a book called, I don't don't like the title, so I'm blocking it, but it's something like Overcoming Destructive Emotions. And um, the interesting part for me in that book was a fellow who studies emotions on faces and how emotion, how faces express emotions, and what happens when faces get held or if they're released. And one of the faces he studied was the Dalai Lama. And he said the Dalai Lama had the musculature of a 20-year-old because his face was so expressive of both sorrow and joy and happiness that he, he, his face was unheld, that he, he was a conduit for these, this natural expression of our heart. And I'm always so moved by that because he's so willing to see the suffering of the world at the same time. If you've read the book Sorrow Mountain, it's about a nun who was imprisoned for some 20 or 21 years in Tibet. She'd actually been a a rebel fighter and was captured in prison and became a nun. And um, one of the things that really kept her alive was her belief and wish that she would meet the Dalai Lama in this lifetime. And, and she's let out of prison after 20 years, and she's still involved with the underground in, in Lhasa. And she's, 
she realizes she's going to get arrested again, so she flees, and she goes over the highest mountains in the world, escapes Tibet, and ends up in India in Dharamsala. And the Dalai Lama meets with every Tibetan who escapes from Tibet. Every person who escapes, he has a private meeting with him. And she describes the meeting, how she started to do her vows, and he said, no, no, get up, and he held her hand. And um, I always get moved when I tell this. And he said, tell me what happened. Tell me, I, w- I want to hear. And then he listens to what happened to her for 20 years. And I just find it so moving that he's listened to everybody in that way. It's not just a story. It's not just to be transcended. It's actually to be shared, our suffering. And he listens and she writes about how they they weep together with her story of what happened. And then they laugh together because both are true, that there is this tremendous suffering, and we each have our share of suffering to carry. And then there's this amazing life that's right here, that's sitting right in our seat. And then in the next moment, we can enjoy. Again, from Jnanapanakatera, he says, Noble and sublime joy is not foreign to the teaching of the enlightened one. Wrongly, the Buddha's teaching is sometimes considered a doctrine espousing melancholy. Far from it, the Dharma leads step by step to an ever purer and loftier happiness. As I said, joy is part of the interactive process of the awakened heart. And it keeps, it lifts the, the compassion from becoming melancholy, depressed, morose. It keeps the equanimity from becoming detached, dry, cut off. It keeps us connected to the beauty and the, and what's worthy of delight in this life. And I personally think it's been underemphasized in the teachings. And I didn't hear so many talks about joy or mudita as I was growing up in the teachings, practicing. And I think it's important for us to really begin to consider it with the same, on the same stature as metta, as karuna, as equanimity. The Buddha's teaching, um, the Buddha's followers were seen, were recognized because of this quality. It said that um, the Buddha himself was called the happy one in his time. And that one king described the Buddhist followers like this. He said, they were joyful and elated, jubilant and exultant, enjoying the spiritual life with faculties pleased, 
free from anxiety, serene, peaceful, and living with the gazelle's mind. <laughs> That's my favorite part, right? <laughs> it's so nice to live with a gazelle's mind. And I had to look that up in the commentaries to see what that was. A gazelle's mind means to be lighthearted. And it's such an important quality in, in practice to have a sense of humor, actually. To have a sense of lightheartedness. To have a sense of even though what we're doing is as serious as anything that I know on the planet, to also take it lightly. To be able to hold it lightly. To be able to bring in the wisdom of equanimity and understand that as serious as it is, we can relax, we can enjoy, we can delight in the process. The Buddha described the path as a path of joy. He said, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment, know the sweet joy of the way. It's really a, a, a very succinct and beautiful description of the path. Look within, be still, as fear and attachment release, know the sweet joy of the way. And you've all had tastes of that. You all know the sweet joy of the way. You wouldn't be here otherwise. Or you wouldn't have stayed this long otherwise. Suffering is important. Very compelling. Joy is important. André Gide, a French, I think, philosopher, journalist, I'm not sure. Anybody know? No? Pardon? Novelist. Novelist. Novelist, okay, thank you. He said, know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. How's that for taking on a precept? To really begin to understand that it's part of our practice to begin to enjoy what's enjoyable, enjoy what's good, enjoy the goodness of others and the goodness of ourselves. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. I don't know if I said this in the hall, but Suzuki Roshi said it. He said, just to be alive is enough. Just to be alive is enough. When we really get here, when we get to be still, when we're free from fear and attachment, there's a joy just in being alive, just in the mystery of ourselves, of other people. Have you noticed what a mystery it is to be here? 
or a mystery that I can say things and you have some idea what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, it could be really different, you know. <laughs> I could be, you know, going la-la-la-la-la-la-la-ding-dong. La, 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 and maybe you'd have some sense of what I was trying to communicate, but I mean, even the phenomena of language is a mystery that we make some sense of our short time here in this beautiful blue-green planet. So what supports joy? What supports joy? One thing that supports joy is our actually paying attention to it. Recognizing it. Not overlooking it. Not forgetting about it not being too attached to suffering or too caught up. And it'll, it'll happen plenty. Suffering is it's compelling and it's here for all of us and for the world. But to not forget to pay attention to what's beautiful or to start to see a little bit differently. Again, from Thich Nhat Hanh, he says, when we have a toothache, we know that not having a toothache is a pleasurable feeling. <laughs> right? It's so simple sometimes. But when we do not have a toothache, most of us are unaware of this pleasant feeling. <laughs> so I want you to just enjoy it's really nice feeling right now, not having a toothache, or not having a broken leg, or whatever, of having things functioning even just normally, relatively normally, let's say. He says, only after we become blind will we be aware that having eyes to see the blue sky and white clouds is miraculous. While we can see, we are rarely aware of this miracle. Practicing meditation is to be aware of both what is painful and what is miraculous. Happiness is the nourishment of the meditator, and it is not necessary to look for it outside of ourselves. We only need to be aware of the existence of happiness in order to have it immediately. And what he's suggesting is, in the moments of, how can I say it? In the moments when we're not unhappy, that is a certain kind of happiness. When we don't have a toothache, it's okay, enjoy it. Partly because it won't last. <laughs> of course, the good side of impermanence is the suffering won't last either. Curiosity supports joy. One of the one of the most helpful qualities I know that we can bring to the practice of mindfulness is to be curious about our experience. Is to begin to have this kind of interest 
of what is this? Not taking things for granted, which is implied in what Thich Nhat Hanh said. Not taking our breath for granted. Not taking our bodies for granted. Not taking our experiences for granted. Not even taking our suffering for granted. Not taking the difficulty for granted. If there's boredom, let's see what it is. Let's be curious. There's anger. Let's be curious about it. What is that? Even if you've had an experience a thousand times, don't let the fact that it's happened many times obscure the freshness, the aliveness, and the newness of that experience happening right now. Be curious about it. Bring a sense of wonder. What is this? Is the famous Zen question. There was a Zen teacher who came to IMS once at the end of the three-month course. And they used to do this often. Somehow these teachers would show up and all of a sudden they'd have them give them a talk in the middle of the in the middle of a long retreat or at the end of a long retreat. So the Zen teacher course did a very Zen thing. He got up there, he looked at everybody, everybody been sitting three months. He said, three months sitting, waste of time. <laughs> what is this? Because he was pointing at this moment, because that's all there is. <laughs> they have to do a little clean up the next day. <laughs> Uh, uh, but that sense of wonder, of, of, of curiosity, of awe about each moment, any moment is possible. And then what, one of the things that often comes when there's true curiosity or wonder is it's very closely connected to a sense of gratitude and appreciation. And so the appreciative quality of the joy comes very naturally when we have a sense of curiosity and wonder and awe. Mystery, the mystery of human life, not forgetting it. And not, not expecting it to be here in every moment. That's not how anything works. But periodically bringing it up, raising it, remembering one of the practices that I really like to do, I do about once a year with my daughter. And we've done it since she was about, I don't know, 10 or 11. And we do it for about a minute at, at most. And the practice is that she has to look at me and I look at her. And she has to see that I'm not her father. And I have to see that she's not my daughter. And it's a very interesting practice to do with anybody you're in relationship with. To break the trance of the roles that we happen to be in. And actually see beyond the role. And my daughter, she'll still do it with me. Actually, it was very interesting. She would do it at first. We'd do it a little bit for 20, 30 seconds. She'd say, okay, that's enough. That's enough. Because it's a little weird to do, you know, at a certain age. But she loved when I would see her as not my daughter, when I would see her beyond that role, when I would see her in a bigger sense that she was both my daughter and something way beyond my daughter. And later when she became a teenager, sometimes when I would 
tell her to do something, she'd say, you're not my father. <laughs> and now, now she likes to do it. She's about 22, my daughter. Now she likes to do it once, once a year, just, just to play with it. And she gets it. And she gets the value of it. But then she wants me to be her dad again. And I love being her dad. One of the things that supports joy is a lack of self-concern. It's hard to be joyful when we feel self-conscious. It's hard to be joyful when there's some kind of selfing go around where we're feeling like, you know, we should be this way or we should be that way or we're, how are we looking in other people's eyes? It's hard to, it's, when you're really feeling joy, you don't care how you look. It doesn't matter. It's freedom. It's freedom from that kind of selfing. In the meditation practice itself, a certain level of concentration will bring joy quite naturally. As the mind gets collected, as it really starts to get composed, and really when the hindrances are in abeyance, and and a certain level of rapture starts to come, joy comes quite naturally. Bliss comes quite naturally. Happiness comes quite naturally. And it's part of the movement of of um, the mind releasing and letting go, becoming one. What blocks joy? Attachment. <laughs> Attachment blocks joy. Grasping, trying to hold on to things, trying to keep things some way, trying to force things, even good things actually takes the joy away. William Blake has a beautiful poem. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. The whole dharma is right there. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies, who understands impermanence, lives in eternity's sunrise, realizes, we would say, realizes the deathless. The comparing mind will block joy. Comparing ourselves to others. Oh, they've got this. Oh, I've only got that. Oh, I want what they have. Oh, I don't want them to get what I have. Comparing, contrasting, not seeing the suchness of things, the uniqueness, not seeing ourselves outside of comparison. What happens if you see yourself without comparing yourself to anything or anybody in the world? And what's here? Like if you pay attention to your experience and you don't compare it to somebody else's experience 
or to some previous experience or to some future experience, then what's here? And it's just like this. It's just now. The suchness of each moment which can never, ever, ever be repeated. Many of us have grown up with some kind of scarcity model about the world, about the universe. If they have it, I can't have it. Or if I have it, there's not enough for that. It's not true with joy. <laughs> there's enough joy to go around. So that scarcity model often will lead to a kind of sense of um, self-protection, holding, feeling separate, having to defend what I've got, or to try and get what somebody else has, envy, jealousy. And we don't want to judge any of these. We're not, we're not outlining this as judgment and saying, oh, I'm horrible and I'm judging, I, or I'm envious, or I have scarcity. We want to illuminate, we want to illuminate our confusion in the service of letting it go. If we don't see it, if, we, if we're not able to see the obscurations, they'll keep obscuring us. There'll be a wall. But when we can see them, then we can begin to let go. Not by doing anything, simply in the light of mindfulness and kindness, compassion, love. One more quality, and actually there are many more that you can think of, reflect for yourself. But one, one thing that I find very interesting, that I believe blocks joy, is knowing. And I've already talked about it a little from the other side, but knowing blocks joy. The idea that we know what's going to happen. The idea that we know how things should be. The idea that we know ourselves. The knowing blocks the mystery. And in, um, in Zen, they have a beautiful saying, they say, not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. And there's a great joy when we don't know and we're intimate. Like even the joy when if we've met somebody and we like them and we're getting, as it said, intimate, but we really don't know them. There's a kind of delight in getting to know someone, really getting to know them, and they're a mystery. And so our knowing of the world, of ourselves, of things, of the Dharma, actually blocks this mystery that's always here. It keeps us from being intimate with it over and over again. Actually, the same thing happens in relationship. You know, at first we meet this person, and it's so delightful, because they're a mystery and we're becoming intimate, we get to know them. You know, then six months later, eight months later, oh, I know them, they're not so interesting anymore. 
one of the beauties of what's possible in relationship is to keep not knowing, to keep seeing, to keep breaking the trance in whatever way, like I described with my daughter, just to break the trance of the role, of the time, of the habit, and to delight in the mystery of another person, of each other, of the world, of the light changing, of the birds quiet down when they go to sleep. They're really noisy in the morning, you know that. <laughs> we don't have these noisy birds in the morning at Spirit Rock. I mean, 4.30, 5 o'clock, it's like, I love you, but I want to sleep a little more. Too. <laughs> uh, so this is Mudita, like the other Brahma Viharas, is both a heart practice and a samadhi practice, a concentration practice. And when it's done, when it's, when we're invoking the Brahma Vihara through samadhi, we use these repetitive phrases. Um, May I be happy, safe, um, healthy, at ease, for metta. Um, May I care about this pain, for example, for compassion. For karuna, um, um, may I have joy and the causes of joy. May you have joy and the causes of joy. May your good fortune increase. May I delight in my own joy. Any kinds of these different kinds of phrases to invoke that quality of heart, to bring it forward. I am happy that you are happy. And, and as Andre Gide suggested, it may be important for us to practice joy in our lives, to begin to pay attention. And I know for myself, I notice when mudita arises in my daily life. I love to notice it. It feels great. It's just this happiness, this joy, this delight. And in San Francisco, and there was this, for, for many years I would ride my bike along the water, along the bay to the Golden Gate Bridge and back for like my daily ride. And it was an old, it's an old army um, uh, base, historic army base from the Spanish originally called the Presidio. And about 15 years ago the Presidio was given to the Park Association. And they started to clean up this area that I used to ride on called Chrissy Field. And first they started to clean it up and take the, the collapsed buildings down and then the rocks out. And at one point they'd ask everybody who walked, they had these signs up, they would ask people who were playing or walking along the beach that if they found any big rocks from the uh, original construction to bring them to the road and then they would pick them up. So all everybody who went there was helping in clean up Chrissy Field. And then they restored the wetlands, the natural wetlands, and then the birds started to come and the water was there and the, the um, I can't remember the name of the bird, the beautiful bird that stands on one leg and and fishes, uh, oh, egrets, big egrets came. 
and then and then people were came, really came back a lot, and all of a sudden I'd be riding, and there'd be all these people, all these different nationalities and languages and colors and sizes and shapes and um, ages and babies and strollers and old people with walkers and lovers holding hands and and I and I always I ride my bike and there's so much mudita for how beautiful and and the beauty that humans can create and then and then the beauty of all the people who are enjoying the beauty that humans can create that we can do and so beginning to look for the natural mudita that arises um, in your life in many ways thinking about someone who brings you joy now the main person I use I don't think will work here I don't think I don't think you know who he is anybody know who Mr. Rogers is? there we go people. <laughs> Mr. Rogers was a TV guy for children. And I'll, I'll tell you a little. But I noticed this because I was teaching with Yanai in IMS and I gave this talk and I could see he didn't have a clue what I was talking about. <laughs> I was talking about Mr. Rogers. But Mr. Rogers was like this, uh, excuse me, but kind of geeky guy who wore a zippered sweater and talked very slowly and was really sweet and really nice and his program was for kids and when I first saw Mr. Rogers I was a little bit of a kind of hipster musician and I was like no this is not for me right turn off Mr. Rogers but later I had a child and you know you kind of want to see what is you, what's on TV for your kid, and there's not much. And so I started to watch Mr. Rogers with her, and I got the transmission. <laughs> Mr. Rogers was the coolest guy on TV. Mr. Rogers had presence. Mr. Rogers actually had wisdom, and he was honored about um, I don't know maybe eight years ago given a lifetime achievement award and one of the critics wrote about him and I'll just get and 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 ever since ever since I saw Mr. Rogers in a new light not only did he have presence and wisdom and he thought he he really had a good mind he also really knew good uncommercial music and I've been a musician I was a somewhat uh, opinionated musician about what real music was and I wasn't interested in popular music and Mr. Rogers really had the real people real country and blues people real jazz musicians the, re the real thing not the commercial version so this writer wrote he said Mr. Rogers is the Dalai Lama of television <laughs> that point can't be refuted there is no better spiritual leader in this godforsaken medium than Fred Rogers <laughs> who will celebrate 30 years as the man who has sat besweatered and lowered the country a minute <laughs> he is a distressing icon a man who takes his time to finish his sentences thinks before he speaks and when he finally utters something, it's slow, sweet, and warm. Mm -hmm. 
Grown men suddenly want footy pajamas and some cocoa after a chat with Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and then he, he goes on to talk about what he did on this award ceremony, which is interesting from a Dharma perspective. He won this award, Lifetime Award, and what's called the Emmys in America. And it's, you know, they give awards to the programs. And it's a big deal for television. And so it, he says, he is a man who garners enormous respect from people. On the Emmy broadcast, he asked, and it's a signature move for him now, for everyone to take 30 seconds and to think about a loved one or someone who has been instrumental in supporting them. Now that's a Dharma practice, to think of a benefactor. It's actually one of the practices that we do when we're um, doing formal metta practice. We, we, it's, it's considered one of the best ways to begin metta is to think of someone who's helped us or supported us or been a benefactor and then start offering the metta for them because it's so easy to connect with our hearts. And so Mr. Rogers does this on this television show. And to take 30 seconds, think about a loved one or someone who's been instrumental in supporting them. And the writer goes on, he says, all the big stars bowed their heads. Do you know how long 30 silent seconds on television feels like? And it's not like you can resist the man. He tells you to take 30 and you do it. <laughs> so Mr. Rogers is someone who brings a lot of joy. The beauty, his being, just makes me happy. Somebody else who's brought me a lot of joy in my life was an African-American musician named Sun Ra. Anybody here know who Sun Ra is? Okay, we've got a couple, a few. Sun Ra was, let's put it this way, Sun Ra understood the shamanistic roots of all music. And Sun Ra kept a big band together for something like 60 years. He garnered that much respect. So he had started a band in the late 20s, and he died somewhere in the 90s. And, um, and you would, I would go see his, him perform with his band, and suddenly I would come out with this hat, something like those Tibetan hats that have the big thing hanging over, and he'd be wearing these sunglasses shaped like big stars, right? And then he'd be wearing this long spangled gown that glittered in the light. And these big shoes, what do you call those shoes? Platform shoes. He'd be wearing big platform shoes. And Sun Ra was happening. Sun Ra, he knew how to have fun. And he understood the uh, theater and music and aliveness and um, goodness of performance that was not about, not about um, making money. It was about joy. It was about expressing all of human life, because they didn't just play happy songs. And Sun Ra, in the, even in the uh, early 60s, I saw films of Sun Ra's band where he took the band to Egypt and they're playing while they're marching around the pyramids. And he understood the spiritual nature of music. <coughs> You can never hear some of his music. His one big hit 
which of course was not really a hit commercially, but was the most well known, was called Space is the Place, Don't You Want to Go? And so you could reflect for yourself, who, who brings you joy? What brings you joy? What touches that part of your heart? What brings a sense of delight, happiness, gladness? Or as I said, just recognizing the joy as it arises. We had a baby born in our house. I live in a uh, a house where we share a building with a number of different people, couples and families. And one of the families had a baby while I was teaching at IMS, actually, a couple weeks ago. And um, I got an email from my wife, and she described it. She described what happened. She was part of it for a while. <clears throat> and and she, she read, she said, um, they called up, they live on the bottom, we live up on the top, and said, can we come up, the couple who were pregnant? And I said, yes, please, so they did. And then she and Matt, the husband, drummed and chanted, while Monique hung out in our shower with a big ball, a big uh, exercise ball. And then we moved to the Zendo, we have a room that's like a little Zendo, where Matthew and Monique would come, come up regularly and sit with us. And she'd been sitting during the pregnancy. And, um, and the, we moved to the Zendo and propped her with myriad cushions as the contractions got more and more intense, listening to Kitty Sarah and Tanisera between bouts of ouch. Kitty Sarah and Tanisera are good friends of ours who have a beautiful CD called uh, Buddhist Heart Mantras. And so they were playing the, the mantras as she was going through her contractions listening to Kitty and Tanisera between big bouts of ouch. Monique was amazing and finally said, call the doula. Do you know that word? Same word here? Doula, the, the midwife. The doula came and we hung out here a bit more, moving between the bathroom to the zendo and back with longer contractions and less rest in between. Matt and I held her back, her feet, her hands, brought water and tea and banana, Finally, the doula said, let's go. I escorted them to her car and off they went, Matt giving me the keys so I could feed Kitty tomorrow. Eugene, oh my God, it was so intense, so exquisite. I am just buzzing. Could feel all that life just pouring through her, even with the pain. Not sure whether to laugh or cry, so I sat for a while. I'm more settled now, but still vibrantly alive. I suppose I could feel some worry. They're not out of the woods yet, but I just feel radiant joy. Wow. We never know when joy will appear, will display itself with the mystery of life, the beauty of life, the goodness of our lives. This is a really dramatic example. Ryokan describes it so simply. He says, the bamboo grove, the bamboo grove in the front of my hut 
Every day I see it a thousand times, yet never tire of it. How would that be? To see the bamboo grove in front of our hut and never tire of it. To be able to see it freshly in each moment. The last piece is the joy of the Dharma. The joy of the Dharma itself. Mudita is one of the four immeasurable states of a Buddha. Immeasurable because it's boundless. That there's no edge to it, no limit to it. Mudita manifests particularly as limitless joy over the liberation of others from suffering. And so to begin to delight in the Dharma, to enjoy the Dharma, the process, the difficulties. When the difficulties are in abeyance, the freedom from suffering, to recognize it, acknowledge it, enjoy it, delight. Delight in the possibility of the human heart and mind to awaken. I'll end with a quote from Shantideva. He says, just as if a blind person feels when one should find a pearl in a dustbin, so I am amazed by the miracle of awakening rising in my consciousness. It is the nectar of immortality that delivers us from death the treasure that lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life, the tree that gives shade to us when we are scorched by life, the bridge that takes us across the stormy river, the cool moon of compassion, the sun that dispels darkness, the butter made from the milk of kindness by churning it with dharma. It is a feast of joy to which all are invited. Let's sit for a minute, please.